Hello and welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason. We get together here every week and discuss issues impacting the industry of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. That's right. It is the Business of Agriculture. Friend of show, Rob Syke, joins me again. He's been on the show before talking about uh, various things, including Food 5.0. It was a concept the last time he was on the show. He was talking about what that means, meaning the era and the evolution of the industry of food production. Well, he's actually has got a book out now. The book came out this fall, uh, actually late summer. It's called Food 5.0. We're going to talk about what the five gradations or the five steps and evolution of food production are. We're going to talk about the future. We're going to talk about regenerative agriculture. We're going to talk about problems, food fights, and what all this means for you. Welcome to the show, Rob Syke. It's good to be with you, Damien. I'm always glad to have you. You know that. Well, uh, it's good to be here in Arizona. We're uh, going to visit the University of Arizona Maricopa Research Facility on Monday. And so today is Saturday, and it's good to spend a little time with you doing a podcast. All right. So to bring our listeners up to date in case they didn't listen to you and I before, and I'll bring you up today as well, dear listeners. Rob and I uh, go way back. He and I met at, we were both on the speaking circuit at an event in Nebraska and then at another event. And then he brought me in because he used to be uh, the owner of a company called Agritrend, which since sold to Tremble. He is now, in addition to all of his other interests and in writing books and giving speeches, he's the CEO of a company called Dot. Dot is a pioneer in autonomous machinery. Uh, I attended their field day back in March at the University of Arizona at their field research farm in Maricopa. That's where he uh, has some uh, involvement. He's in fact doing field days there because DOT is an autonomous piece of equipment that looks like nothing you've seen before. So where do you want to start? You want to start on Food 5.0, your, your involvement with DOT or your other venture? We got so much to cover. Well, let's, uh, let's first of all start with uh, the book Food 5.0, which was released in August. It was written for uh, an urban audience. I targeted it for that audience. It has and talks about the five iterations of agriculture. And in the book, I cover off uh, robotics and I cover off DOT and AgVisor Pro and a lot of things that I've been working on, Damien. But let's start off with, with, with the book. Okay, let's talk about your book because, dear listener, if you are a reader or uh, even if you're not, you should pick up this book because if you're involved in the business of agriculture, Rob does a really good thing. As he said, he wrote it for the consumer, which is something I try to do with my book that's coming out called Food Fear. Made it so that we can read it and appreciate that are in the industry, but so that others will understand this industry. Not talking down to them, simply explaining in real real straight frank information how this whole thing happens food 5.0 is the five iterations of food production all right 10,000 years ago we invented agriculture take me from there to point one two three four and five of food 5.0 right so the five iterations that i hypothesize or put forward in the book damien start off with exactly that the age of muscle and whether that was man or oxen or horse or woman pulling the plow uh, that age of muscle, and some people think we, we should still be in that age, but that age of muscle was uh, age of agricultural drudgery, and it continued on for a long time until we got to agriculture 2.0, which is the era of machines. We're still in that era, but the machines are changing, and the machines allowed us to take energy and turn it into food much faster than we could with muscle. So we went from muscle to machine, and then uh, the machines you're talking about, I mean, what do we got here? We got the the cotton gin all those well, things started are- off with yeah the, the tractor the cotton gin the, the threshing machine you could even say the plow 
the first plow, even though it was muscle uh, powered, it was a machine unlike the ones we'd had before. We f- we broke the prairie with a plow behind a, a horse. So that's kind of where muscle started to meet machine, and then we we mechanized it from there. All that's happened in the last two hundred years. Yeah, and it starts to iterate faster after that as we get uh, generations of machines coming on. Ten thousand years were just muscle. Yeah, last couple hundred years machine. Then from machine, you talk about the pace of change. Then we went to uh, iteration three, which was chemistry. Okay, and that's all happened just really since the last hundred years, nineteen hundreds. Really, it started uh, with the second, with the with the first world war, where they began to uh, have uh, an issue around uh, declining nitrogen supplies across the world. This was the era of the guano wars. People don't understand that bit of history. In your it, book, you talk about the guano wars, and you also exclaim uh, and explain that. The word shit came about because of the guano wars. Take us uh, back. Well, ship high in transit. When you take guano and put it into a ship, it's a lot of free ammonia. And uh, so when they loaded these ships off of the coast of Peru, where they were harvesting this guano in appalling conditions to bring back that fertilizer to North America and Europeans, uh, ship high in transit. Shit was uh, painted on the side. Now, I thought that was the origin of the word shit, but my, my editor said, actually, you're wrong, Rob. It goes back way deeper to shite. So anyways, but still an interesting uh, anecdote. And guano, for those of you that are listening, are saying, wait a minute, I've heard of this, but what is guano? It's bird manure. One, uh, off the coast of Peru, and there's a war fought over it between Bolivia and Peru, claiming rights over these islands off of the coast where they would have people, essentially slaves, on the islands harvesting this guano uh, that was shipped back uh, to farmers to utilize because nitrogen was running out and when the guano ran out uh, we were on a precipice of a real problem and it was the Haber Bosch process that that began the era of chemistry and brought uh, nitrogen into manufacturing by taking the nitrogen 78 percent that you breathe and turning it into fixed nitrogen from 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 uh, unfixed nitrogen yeah so we essentially we knew that we had a problem we you know soil science was still sort of a a new science and barely even really uh explored very well but we thought we thought okay we need to do something about fertilization we go and find this bat manure or bird manure uh and then we're shipping it here and throwing on the fields and then somebody smart says well we need nitrogen they come up with this haber bosch idea where we can essentially create nitrogen out of the air with applying some energy to it because the air that we breathe is natural gas we use high high energy high temperature and pull the nitrogen out of the air that's inert nitrogen into fixed nitrogen. And that really, what's really interesting about that is that 50% of the protein, Damien, of every single person on the planet owes itself, uh, that that protein goes back to fertilizer. And that comes back from a book called, uh, uh, um, uh, that was written by Thomas Hager, uh, it was it was a book about uh, atmospheric nitrogen. It was very cool. All right, so we get through chemistry, and that's all happened just really since in the last 100 years. And then we get into the era, the fourth iteration of Food 5.0, genetic 
engineering. Now, that's really in the last 25 years. Right. So you go from the year of chemistry, which is the Haber-Bosch year, and then you got to think about 2,4-D, you think about atrazine, you think about trifluoral. And you Basically, think about those are all, all of the world chemistry. war II. Atrazine, 2,4-D, yeah. 1945. Well, atrazine, 1950s, Yeah, and 60s. then your trifluralins came along in the 60s and 70s, and we worked the land at atrazine, same thing, we worked the land. And then along in, in the uh, late 80s, beginning of the 90s, came herbicide-tolerant crops, G- genetic engineering or, or GMOs, and that profoundly changed uh, agriculture and to the better. And uh, people say that, uh, that uh, GMOs are the era of using more chemistry. It's exactly the opposite. I call the genetic engineering era of agriculture, whether it be herbicide tolerant or insect tolerant crops that were built uh, through genetic engineering, the dechemicalization of agriculture, not the not the use of more. Sure, we're going to we're going to through the right the right application of genetic engineering if it's allowed to continue. If GMOs are allowed to exist, and we don't know in places like Canada, and the United States, whether that's going to happen or whether we'll end up being uh, outlawed because of uh, fear. Uh, the idea is we can actually engineer a crop that needs. Uh, even less insecticide and maybe even can put out uh, toxins naturally that that won't need herbicide. Or can fix its own nitrogen as opposed to us using so much nitrogen fertilizer. And get rid of the Haber-Bosch theory altogether if we can take an oat plant or a corn plant or a wheat plant that can fix its own nitrogen the way a legume does. Okay, what about 5.0? Okay, you got me the four. You got me the muscle. You got me the, uh, the machine. You got me the chemistry. You got me the genetically engineered. Again, all of the la- all of the two, three, and four have all happened really in the last one hundred years of the last ten thousand years. Not not uh, uncoincidentally, that's also when we first had food surpluses. When you think about it, when we were in the muscle era, there was no such thing as a food surplus in the whole world. There was no such thing as a surplus. It was surplus. a scarcity time. It was a, uh, the yeah. whole all of the agriculture was defined by scarcity. All of human existence was defined by scarcity. But once phases, iterations two, three, and four, machine, chemistry, and GMO technology came in, we had surpluses while the population doubled. Well, this is really interesting that you should should pick on that. So if we take uh, from 1960, for example, and we, we think about the trajectory of the increase of population in, on, on the globe, we fed that population, and to your point, with surpluses. Now, if you stare into the future, the question is that our population, arguably, we'll get into this, whether it goes to 9 billion, 10 billion, 11 billion people, is going to rise between now and the next number of decades. And the question will be, can we feed the future with agricultural technology? And you would argue that you'd think, yes, the answer is yes. But from 1960 to today, we were, we were getting new tools. And, and people were embracing those tools and we were allowed to use them. Today, agriculture is being stripped of tools. Tools are being stripped away. The pressure on genetic engineering or GMO is being stripped away or neonicotinoids or all sorts well, of glyphosate herbicide. All sorts of really amazing products being stripped out of the farmer's hands. And we can say that some of this might be good. At least it makes the consumer in affluent countries and the, the consumer in Toronto or Chicago feels good that they uh, they voted against uh, whatever pins for chickens in Los Angeles or the use of glyphosate uh, in the courtrooms in California. The problem is, as you said, there was an embrace of technology 
for, throughout all of this. When we went from, nobody, nobody said, damn, I really want to go out and walk around behind a horse all day today and to plow, oh, could I? To, to plow an acre and a half. <laughs> and uh, nobody said, can I, I really want to go out and pitch bundles of, uh, of crops around uh, on top of a wagon that, you know, the cutting, threshing, and separation. The combine was embraced. Technology was always embraced, and your concern now is, are we going to, we're going to outlaw it before instead of embrace it and then all of a sudden put ourselves in a squeeze well and this is this is really where the fifth iteration of agriculture comes in and the fifth iteration i call convergence and convergence is uh is really a mashing together damien of all the technologies that are coming down the pipe and i'll i'll give you an example i think we can go with this one when uh, gps or auto steer first came out i could come out to your farm and i could sell you auto steer i could sell you a gps program and it would drive the tractor uh, with swath guidance and you wouldn't have to steer it and that was one technology well today uh, in dot for example the robotic platform that we're working with um, that's just one of a myriad of technologies that's all mashing together. In the book, I, I really don't start with uh, the computing technologies and that sort of thing. I actually uh, start with bio uh, biosynthesis or synthetic biology, which when you think about it, you think that's plants and stuff, but the, the ability for us to work with synthetic biology is really coming down to computational power. So our ability to sequence genomes, to be able to quickly ascertain where in the genetic sequence a, a gene might be out of place or where there's resistance or possible immunity that can be turned on or off, that's a, that's a computer and a data-power-driven science. And that's why I think synthetic biology bringing out new fertilizers, new foods, no, new crops, new, new type of resistance in the field is going to be a burgeoning area. Um, as the, as you say in the book, food 5.0, and I know that uh, some of you wonderful and faithful listeners are saying, man, you had Syak on here talking about five iterations before. Yeah, but he didn't have his book out. And also I hadn't read it because I, I just was, it was still in the works. By the way, if you pick up the book, you'll notice that I gave a testimonial up front because I have read the book and I do think that it's brilliant. Also, what Rob does a good job of is taking these bigger, complex things and boiling it down so that everybody can understand it. And that's valuable. Here's what I'm uh, wanting to kind of get to now about the convergence, because that's the big thing about the way it all comes together now is you bring this all together and it all makes sense. I believe in the future. If we're talking about convergence, I believe that chemistry gets to be less and less. We will use less and less of it for a couple of reasons. One, we don't have to. B, we've gotten two, we've gotten more selective. We've gotten smarter about the, its application. And then three, there is the reality of the consumer. They don't know when they, uh, as a as a jury, remember, consumers are juries. Juries are consumers. Um, when when the plaintiffs' attorneys win the case in San Francisco against glyphosate, that eventually means that glyphosate gets restricted. 43,000 lawsuits right now are against glyphosate and Bayer. That's just Bayer. Uh, what about all the other contract manufacturers and the generic manufacturers? Well, if, if, the, if the safest product that we use and, and a, uh, a, a molecule that's a one-in-a-hundred-year miracle molecule called glyphosate 
if if that's under scrutiny and if that is under attack, just yeah. think what's going to happen with the rest of the chemistry. Again, and you know, think about the stuff that when we were kids that was being blown out there in by the gallon. You know, you talked about atrazine and the trifluorins, and then what carbamate, uh, organophosphates. <laughs> that's not. <laughs> and then there's the stuff that's a soil sterile. What's the stuff that you know, pramatol or some things like that that have been Tebutyrin. used. Yeah. There's some really nasty, wicked stuff that the consumer doesn't even have an understanding of. But the Environmental Working Group and the U.S. Public Interest Research Group, which are really thinly veiled organic trade organizations and also fundraising organizations, have targeted glyphosate because it is the world's most used herbicide. And it's one of the safest. And if they can knock that one off, the others will be... Don't have a chance. They'll, they'll have a chance with class action. So, again... Do we um, see a world... Do you see a world with almost none or no herbicide? Well, I think every farmer listening to this podcast would like to farm more organically. Because what it's, I less, mean, why, it's less, it's less at money. Why? Not? Yeah, less, less money spent on crop inputs, uh, pesticides, or less money spent on fertilizer. That makes sense. And technology, Damien, is going to allow us to do something. I just recently uh, saw some really cool object recognition technology where cameras mounted on a sprayer can actually pick out weeds in a crop and spray those weeds with nozzles that are so precise, they only spray the product on the weed in the crop, okay. dropping dropping the amount of herbicide you're using by 90%. Yeah, so now if you're talking about, if we can take, instead of just going out, in the old days we went out with our 500-gallon sprayer hooked onto the back of a John Deere 4020, and we drove it around and we just sprayed the hell out of everything. It didn't matter. It just sprayed it out. And we put some pretty wicked chemistry down. And then we got a little bit better and more judicious with things like GPS. Now... You're talking about technology that actually eyeballs and says that's a dandelion. Well, and this is in in in, that, in the, in the that's chapter. That's a ragweed. Well, in the chapter exactly in the chapter on convergence, so much of it is uh, around object re recognition, perception, and then something called artificial intelligence, where you basically teach the cameras what they're seeing and making decisions to spray or to even mechanically e eradicate those weeds in the crop. I don't, I don't think, I don't want a world where herbicide is outlawed because we know that it has a time and a place and an application. I wouldn't have any problem, nor would anybody in this industry, being more judicious in its usage because really it's a matter of, uh, there's a certain level of safety, but there's also the reality of risk and money. Well, uh, I want to I wanna state this categorically so the audience can hear this, especially those not uh, from a farm. When you see a sprayer going down the field and you see all that stuff coming out the back in the sprayer it's water it's five to 20 gallons of water per acre carrying the equivalent of a pop can on a football field the reason that we use water is we have to carry this active ingredient we have come a long way in our lifetime damien you and i have seen remarkable reductions in the amount of active ingredient and convergence the utilization of this technology will allow us to carry that even further downwards in my book which is coming out dear listeners in december food fear so if you're listening to this and you uh and it's after december you should probably look it up and food fear you. it'll come out in time for christmas that's the plan i don't get as into the science as rob does because that's more his uh wheelhouse than mine but yes what he just said right there if you want to share this information uh around you're sitting there at dinner around the holidays with your non-agricultural uh family and they say something ridiculous now aunt madge who lives in the suburbs says i heard they spray those GMOs all over and it's killing us. They're dosing yes, the crop right. with chemicals. And, See that comes out of the sprayer. And then you can say in on the average acre, which is the size of a football field, roughly about one pop can, one 12 ounce can of pop worth of actual chemistry is applied over the an area the size of a football field. That's a great stat. Okay, 
when I look at the future, I do see less chemistry, and and some of it is going to be because of the legislative. I heard I've heard it now twice anecdotally that there are insurance companies that are looking long and hard about whether they will insure a company that sells or distributes glyphosate because they are wondering about the blowback on the the lawsuits. One of the safest products we've ever made, and it's I don't amazing. disagree. I, yeah. I say in my book that glyphosate was to me the polio vaccine, aspirin, and, and <laughs> you know insulin, and, and all all in one. Now, granted, it does have its limits. Limitations, and we did overuse it. We have, you could say, overused it. But we tend to overuse stuff that works. Yep. We overused the car. We overused uh, climate well, control. Well, I should just mention insulin, by the way. If you know anybody getting injected with insulin, that's a genetically engineered, genetically modified medicine. So anyway, I, I digress. Sorry. Uh, that's fine to digress. It's just the it's the Business of Agriculture podcast, and you can do that. All right, so talking to Rob Syke, he and I are buddies, and he's been on here before because he always has great stuff to share. When I look at the future, your book, Food 5.0, looks at the future also. You talk about a burgeoning population. I point out that that's been overstated. The United Nations verges verges on an activist organization because they're big on uh, taking money from f- folks like Canadians and, and the United States and Western Europe and deploying it into uh, the developing world. And they like to use a lot of alarmist uh, rhetoric to make that happen. The UN says 11 billion. Then there's a, a UN high variant projection that says in 100 years from now, we might have 17 billion people. I don't think any of those things are going to happen. I say that we're going to get about another billion people. And that's mostly because of aging population because they're fed well and they have health care. But then we start declining. So if we get around, say, $9 billion, that's that's probably where I see things right. happen. Uh, Damien, I, I don't know that I buy that because aside from the UN and the WHO, there is a book out there. It's called Factfulness that the late Hans Rosling released last year, and it is really an interesting one on demographics. Now, I don't, dis- I, I don't, I don't disagree with you that uh, the, the likelihood of 13 billion, we don't know if we're gonna get to that. 11 billion is likely, and we'll probably see that before 2050. And the point that I wanna make is that I have a farm in Uganda, and the average age in Uganda is 16 years of age, and uh, there's 180 million people in Nigeria, average age, 17. So there are places in the world that are going to emerge with population that are increasing very rapidly. I think our obligation in agriculture is to make sure that they have the technology needed to feed themselves. Again, this is one of the reasons that I wrote this book. That's right. And we will feed them. And we're going to grow by another billion or billion and a half, let's say. I don't see us hitting 11 billion because the more affluent a society becomes and better educated, the more they stop breeding. It's just an absolute fact. In the United States of America, our birth rate's only 1.9. We would be losing population were it not for immigration. Those countries you named are actually very rapidly becoming middle class. Very rapidly. They're very yep. rapidly developing yep. a middle class. And what happens very quickly when a girl gets educated, educated and uh starts making a little bit of money she's not in a hurry to run and have 16 kids yeah. number uh, of number of children declines in, in Mor- Mor- morocco is a great example where the number of children has gone down i think in the stats go down from eight down to like uh, 2.3 or something like only that. in like 40 years it's just very quickly yeah. Yeah. yeah so either way we know that we've got an obligation to feed the world i think that we uh can can continue to do this and we'll we'll have to do with less chemistry I see less tillage. This is another one that I've been throwing out to my ag audiences. Less tillage and less people, Damien, on the farm. There's a lot less people on the farm. I point out that your company, Dot, or whatever companies uh, continue to push the autonomous machinery, in the country where I live half the year, where I'm in the rural Indiana, 
I know that they're, we're better off than some folks because we have more population. But you start going to even more uh, sparsely populated areas, South Dakota, Nebraska, whatever. Who do you get to come out and work on these farms? Well, there's a lot. Of, you're going to turn your half. Well, you got, you're going you to turn your five hundred thousand dollar piece of equipment over to someone from the temp agency. You, I don't you, think so. You've got two problems that you just hit. Number one is that these farms and many of the guys that I work with, and many of the farming operations are fifteen, twenty, thirty thousand acre farming operations. They're a long way from a city. Every piece of equipment they have is half a million dollars. Who who do you get? attracted to move out to these remote rural areas to also work in sometimes a seasonal capacity i know how to drive it's, i know how to drive expensive it's a equipment. real dilemma <laughs> you know i i can because i have flexible employment i can go and help my buddies and i know how to run a grain cart and a three hundred thousand dollar tractor and they don't have any problem trusting me to do that let's say i'm not there and it's tuesday and the they're saying well wait somebody from the temp agency is gonna come out and do this i don't think so yeah. so that's where autonomous machinery comes in i think autonomous machinery for sure as part of our future. I think less chemistry is part of our future. I think greater productivity is part of our future. And because of greater productivity, and I see less population, I think a bunch of marginal property, marginal land doesn't get farmed 20 to 30 years from now. Well, I think that will happen as we don't need to have as much land because we can produce more off a smaller footprint. The other thing that's really interesting is with genomics, this uh, this whole area of nutrigenomics with I, I've have I have my my genome sequenced I, at La Jolla at the Human Nucleus Institute. So I have my 22 chromosomes and my 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 genes and all of that stuff. Uh, 477 exciting pages for you to read if you want, Damien. The point is that as we get that more commonplace where people have their genome sequenced, foods are going to be um, uh prescribed or suggested for your genome versus mine. So we're going to eventually have foods that are more functional foods or foods that are are suited better for your blood type or your body type or your genomics. Yeah, so if you're a B, if you're, your, if you're a B negative or B I'm a B which is like the the rare type we think that maybe I should eat something differently you than a rare. person that's an AB or someone that's an O positive. And then what about, uh, what about then, you know, the diabetic issue? This is something I point out and my audiences that are in the corn country don't like it. Corn syrup is going to get whacked. And I'll tell you why it has been thrown into a lot of products, which is good for corn production. It was not necessarily good for the, the, the human condition in the United States of America, we've gone from 1% diabetic to now nine and a half percent of our populace has type two diabetes. I'm not blaming corn syrup, but the correlation of corn syrup consumption and type two diabetes prevalence is absolutely goes in lockstep. Yeah. Well, again, you have to be careful, careful with correlation versus causation. But the, the point that I want to make is that as we know more about our individual bodies and our children's bodies and, and how those bodies function based on, on genomics, I think that we will see uh, emergence of a new type of uh, industry based on matching foods and attributes inside of foods to human beings who, who want to consume those. And I think that's going to lead to some really interesting opportunities for farmers. I'll give you one example. Selenium in wheat. Uh, if you have a high selenium diet, 
Uh, selenium has been shown to reduce incident of prostate cancer in men. So if you could tie high selenium wheat production in high selenium soils and isolate that wheat grown on the soils, that wheat should receive a premium if it's going into the bread that, that, a, that a human being would want to consume. Uh, in my book, Food Fear, that's coming out, I point out, because I think in agriculture, Rob, the most, uh, most, the most genuine thing we can do is admit where we've... Uh, not screwed up, but done what we've done, and I can tell you why. We get paid by the bushel and the pound, and the the we'd have not been paid by the riboflavin content in a carrot. We have not been paid based on the selenium content of a bushel of wheat, and that doesn't make us wrong. It means that, first off, you couldn't even hardly test for that 100 years ago, and secondly, we just grew what we had to to stay in business. Well, this is really an interesting point. Most of the agricultural commodities we produce are commingled. So farmer Billy and Bobby and 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 uh, Janice, farmer Jones, and was, they're all mixed together, yeah. commingling corn, soybeans, wheat, uh, barley, canola, whatever. They're all commingled. Um, however, uh, there's emerging technology. I just played with something real recently called spectroscopy. I actually talk about it in the book. We're using light to ascertain uh, attributes inside of uh, crops. We did an experiment where we had uh, 2,300 different samples of barley with known amounts of protein in, and we're using a spectroscopy light meter to ascertain how much barley there was inside. And this is gonna be done very quickly and very cheaply. You could test out if there was glyphosate in lentils. You, and the, the interesting thing is a side benefit, it had a 97% accuracy, 97% accuracy on distinguishing between Metcalf and Copeland barley, something that's really important. So these technologies are going to allow us to do this. By the way, dear listener, I hope you're enjoying as we speculate what the future holds. Now, some of you that are real farm types are going to say, Damien and Rob, you're full of crap. You know, there are products that we are being paid for based on the contents. I know that low oleic uh, soybeans, for instance, right? Uh, there's some of those things. But in general, as Rob pointed out, everything was a homogenous product. That's why they called it number two yellow corn, or they called it uh, what have you. You just you brought it to the mill, and that's what you got paid for based on how it test weighted, right? I see a future in agriculture because of this ability to do so. On my dairy farm growing up and on the dairy farm for the guy that rents my land right now, they pull a sample, and he is paid for the 100 weight, but he's also paid a premium based on the protein and the butterfat content. Digest, yeah, whatever it would be inside, the attributes inside. Within the milk, yeah. So you get what we, I mean, that's always been a thing. We get paid premium on the contents. That's probably going to come to everything, especially as we get better about nutrient density of products. Instead of just a good looking carrot, it's going to be, how does this carrot actually uh, meter out and on this is nutrients. where autonomi uh, autonomization comes in because today on a lot of farms you simply haven't got enough time to segregate you haven't got enough time to test you haven't got enough time to do precision agriculture and the variable rate that could be done to increase the agronomics and as we begin to uh, have more autonomous agriculture where where devices are doing it and a good example of that would be spring crop protection products and spring at nighttime which is the best time stomata are open it's the best time to get efficacy of your of your products your spring we don't spray at nighttime largely because it's dark um, but now if you had an autonomous robot able to spray at nighttime with camera vision that wouldn't have to drive even doesn't need gps uh, can can see the rows can see the furrows 
shadows at nighttime, a really an amazing way to, uh, to, 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 to reduce our inputs, but to also to try to achieve some of these attributes that we've been talking about. Well, that's, that's where I see the future is that we're going to get, you know, food becomes more personalized to the consumer because that's what the post-millennials have been trained. I mean, they can go on a on an app on their phone right now and and find a car. It used to be when you were a kid, I was a kid, your mom and dad went and found the station wagon that was the right price and, and they bought it. The, the next generation behind us and, and the way the society is becoming is it's much more about them. And, and that's fine. It's good for everybody. They'll pay a premium and they get what they want. I believe that food becomes a bit more that way as you've already pointed out i see us being able to produce a less commoditized product through the technology it's uh, happening right now where food is turning into religion when i grew up uh greek orthodox or presbyterian catholic united church whatever it was that was religions today our religion for a great number of people are centered around food they're a paleo a pescatarian which is actually a thing uh, they're uh, organic or they're non-GMO or they're conventional or they're meditarian, whatever it is, uh, food has become a religion. And this trend is not going to subside, uh, especially as people... St- I-, I hope that we lose some of that rhetoric and start to turn into some of the stuff that's actually based on some fact, which is tying nutrients back to human genomes. Yeah, I, I guess I'm with you. I know that humans are emotional and they are agriculturally um, uninformed. I'm not being mean. It's just that they just aren't around the industry the way you and I are. I don't mind that they get excited, that they have demands, that they want food to be about them. I would like it to have at least some basis in practicality. And we can do that. You know, if they say, hey, I don't want my stuff to be... Uh, but they uh, also have to pay for that. And they, because the segregation that goes on with... It's going to cost something. Action, but the yeah. marketplace has proven that they will. I mean, there's a reason that Whole Foods exists. It's not because of the lowest price. Well, they, they are marketing a story to the consumer, very often a distorted or even an untrue story, but they're, they're selling a story that makes the consumer feel good. And, and in affluent countries like ours, feelings and stories sell, and I talk about that a lot as well as you. All right, last prediction. I look at the future. We've given you our thoughts, dear listeners, about when we look at the future, and we could have this conversation again and again. When I see the future... I see it being actually positive for agriculture. It's going to be different. Again, we're going to have a an ability to stay in business, but it's not going to be just by going out and producing uh, as much as we can in a commodity fashion. Because I think that the uh, the consumer, uh, when the consumer is well fed, the consumer can be more discerning. Okay, I'm going to make a prediction here, and it's real wild and it's way out there, but when you consider what's happening with quantum computing right now, which is not binary ones and zeros, but qubits that can actually exist in both states, and it increases the computing power. Right now, we have a situation where we take uh, the 78% inert nitrogen in the air, we turn it through Haber-Bosch into fertilizer, we put that fertilizer on the ground, we plant the seeds in the ground, the seeds grow, they become plants that we eat or we feed to cattle or or livestock that turns into protein whether we eat the crops that has the protein or we have the animals that are eating the crops that we eat the animals and turn into our protein 
That's quite a long cycle. What happens if you just eliminate everything in between? You just take the nitrogen out of the air and you turn it into protein instantaneously, then we bypassing have... photosynthesis altogether. So we bypass photosynthesis, we bypass livestock, we bypass having to put something on a truck, take it to a facility, kill it, butcher it, wrap it in cellophane, put it at Kroger, buy it. What we just did, though, is very Star Trek, Rob. We just took nitrogen out of the air and put it Made into it our into bodies. protein. Yes, okay. and so, I mean, I'm, I'm not are saying... We going, are we talking about a way big future where there's no eating? Well, I'm, I, I'm, I'm just saying that if we're talking about the future of agriculture, that would be a future of a lot less agriculture because you're really taking protein straight out of the... making it out of, out of thin air. You bypass the middleman, you bypass the crop field, you bypass the cow, yeah. and you went straight to... Well, so, it's, it's, you asked for a wild prediction, like a wild it. thought, and, and, you know, and, and I'm not advocating, I'm not saying, please don't, don't throw something against the dash of the truck as you're listening to this. I'm not saying it's happening today. But quantum computing is going to allow us to do it, and this was this was something I made up. This was something by a guy Reg Rigetti Computing, and he gave this thought process at a at a Peter Diamandis event in L.A. I attended to, and it was it was a pretty big mind twist for me. What about what about eating? Does eating go away then if we're able to do that? I don't know. I like eating. <laughs> <laughs> I want a steak, Damien. All right. Speaking of which, we should go and have a snack. Any of the closing thoughts? Rob Syke, he's the author of Food 5.0. He is the CEO of DOT, the autonomous machinery company. He is also my buddy, and he's got another company in, in agriculture. He'll have to tell us about another time. What's the name of that one? Agvisor Pro. Uh, it's the Uberization of Knowledge and Wisdom. We'll talk about it at and another time. And talk about Ag's future. Last thought. Closing out. Rob, go. Well, I think, Damien, the extent that you get out there and talk about agriculture, I think our job is, uh, as communicators is to equip farmers with sound bites that they can use with Aunt Madge at a Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, it's, uh, people say to farmers, oh, just tell your story. You've got a great story. Farmers were never trained to tell their story to an urban audience and, and, and stand up against activism. So I think that our job, uh, your job, Damien, is important. And if, uh, if you guys get a chance to pick up Food Fair uh, before Christmas, I have also had a chance to read the the preliminary draft of that book and it is just full of a really quick little uh, fast read fun and really ingenious segments congratulations on food fear damien thank you very much all right dear friends thanks for joining us till next time it's the business of agriculture